1: Hello, and welcome to the modern adventurer podcast. I'm John Horsfall, an adventure athlete who has pursued numerous expeditions around the world. My hope is that on this podcast, we can look to explore the big topics in the world of travel and adventure. This podcast talks to adventurers and explorers around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders from all walks of life. We listen to the crazy stories from their expeditions and tragic losses and sacrifices they have made. My next guest is an adventurer and storyteller. She is currently undertaking a crazy expedition called mountains of the world a solo and unsupported expedition to run a mountain range in every continent. I am delighted to introduce to the show, Jenny Tuff.
2: Hey, how's it going?
1: Jenny, good to have you on the show and uh, thank you for uh, coming on all the way from Canada. You're in quarantine at the moment.
2: I am in quarantine, just got back from Scotland.
1: Uh, Very nice. Very nice. Well, I have to say I was. Really impressed with uh, some of the stuff you've done over the last couple of years how How did this sort of love for adventure and running come about?
2: Uh, so I grew up in the Canadian Rockies and you know I never I always was into travel uh, that was always my big passion and I was also into running and that was just kind of another these two completely different passions that I had and then when I left home after I finished school and started traveling the world i You know, I was kind of immune to homesickness, and I still am. But I miss mountains. It's just one thing that whenever I'm in mountains, wherever they are in the world, even if they're a country that I didn't even know previously existed, um, I just feel at home. I feel that comfortable, peaceful thing that I think most people feel when they're in their actual home. So, um, it just kind of all came out of this love of mountains that I realized. Like, I combine my love of endurance sport and travel, and putting those two things together was just like the thing that made my heart sing. And so that's what I've pursued over the last fifteen years of adventure.
1: Oh well, wow. good. So you've been doing this fifteen years, I guess. So
2: yeah, I was when I finished university, um, I went back home briefly, and I mean I lasted like a month and spent everything that I had, which wasn't a lot, on a touring bicycle and cycled up to the Yukon, and that was my first really big adventure. At the time, I'd, I'd never cycled like I've never rode a bike aside from like a little kid bike or whatever. So I I didn't know how to ride a bike. That's not a problem. You can learn pretty quickly. They say it's like riding a bike, but I mean, I didn't know how to, like, I didn't know there were tubes inside the tires. Like that was how like my bike knowledge was just really, really pathetic. Um, So it was a bit of a, I don't think it was a smart place to start adventure to go into the Canadian wilderness with something you don't know how to fix, but that was, was was that a
1: road bike or a mountain bike?
2: Uh, It was a touring bike so it is quite similar geometry to a road bike Um, and it's a steel frame Canadian made. Um, I loved it I still actually have that bike.
1: Yeah it's it's actually funny enough exactly the same how I started in adventure was to buy a touring bike and then cycle across America.
2: Wow that's a big start.
1: Uh, And as you say I'd never sort of gone more than sort of 10 miles in one day and then did very little training and then was like, right. Okay. I'm 70 miles, New York to Princeton.
2: Oh my gosh! I also think it's the best way to start. Like it's stupid and you're going to like hurt yourself quite a lot. But I mean, I was 21 at the time, so, you know, you can take the pain. Just go for it.
1: Yeah. I, and then changing a tire. I hadn't changed one for probably 15 years from when I was sort of taught. And I was like, right. Okay. How do I do this again?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had a like- in my bag for how to do it,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I was there for like an hour, just sort of sh- trying to break <laughs> it and trying to do this. Whereas, as you say, now probably takes you what a minute or two.
2: Depends on the tire. Road <laughs> tires could take me a little while, but yeah, hopefully a minute or two.
1: Yeah, and so the the six or the mountain race around the world. How did that idea sort of start about and what sort of drove you to do it?
2: It was never meant to happen. I, um, I came across, like, I just was looking for an adventure in mountains. I was really craving mountains. I mean, I, I love Scotland and um, I really love living there, but I was really missing the big, big mountains. And I spend a lot of time daydreaming at maps. That's just one of my guilty pleasures throughout the day when I should be working, I look at maps. And I came across the Tian Shan of Kyrgyzstan. And was looking at images of them. And you, you ever have that moment where like your heart stops and you know that your life isn't complete until you go to that actual place. And that was my reaction to the Tian Shan. So I decided I would go there. Um, and somehow in that process, I really can't remember how because I'm sure there was wine involved. I decided, you know, cycling across them would just be too fast. I would miss it. So I should slow down and maybe just run across uh, and I would run unsupported because I've always believed in unsupported challenges. I think you're more immersed in the culture and the community when you do it that way. Um, and no one had ever done that. No one had ever crossed Kyrgyzstan on foot in recorded history. I mean, I'm sure lots of people have. But I mean, running in this way had never been done, which was so exciting to me because it seems like there are no worlds first left. And I couldn't believe there was this entire country that just seemed like no one had done it. I should have taken way more time to contemplate why no one did it, but I just, you know, obviously was so stoked and went ahead planning this and figuring out how to do it. And then I, I went out and did it and it was by far the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. Uh, so I was, the recovery afterwards was, was brutal. Like I had no idea how to recover from something that intense. Uh, so it was months and months after I'd done that world first, that was meant to be the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. And then, you know, who knows what was next. Um, I started looking back on it and started realizing that was actually the most alive I've ever been. It was the best thing I ever did. The whole process of it from planning, having to figure out a route to actually doing it and living out there um, was by far the best thing I ever did. And I wanted to do it again. And so, again, wine was involved. I mean, we've got to blame wine for almost all the ideas that I come up with. Um I decided I would do this. I like, actually made a list of all the mountain ranges I wanted to run across, and then there's actually more mountain ranges in the world than you realize. So I had this huge list. So I thought I need a theme. So I'll just pick one on every continent, and then it's a thing. And then there's only six, and it's not that bad. And um, and so that's how the challenge was born. And a few months later, I went to Africa to do the Atlas Mountains.
1: Oh wow! Um, and so your. The run before, did you? were you a big runner or had, did you train hard for it or was it very much a get up and go?
2: Uh, yeah, running has been a really significant part of my life since I was a teenager. Um, it started from a, a really negative place. When I was 15 or 16, I started running just because I absolutely hated my body. Um, I think a lot of teenage girls go through that where what you see in media and magazines. I mean, now I know that that's all photoshopped, but at the time, you look at that and you go, well, my body doesn't look anything like that. And I'm being told I'm meant to look like that. So I would run just to punish myself and I hated it. it came from a really negative place, but the more I ran, the better it got and the other benefits, the mental health benefits, the not looking at my body, like it was an object that had to look like these magazines, but rather looking at my body as something that could take me further away on adventures and up trails. Cause I was so outdoorsy and I just loved being in the mountains um, then running started to develop to be something that was just really important to me and something that I actually loved and I did on purpose. Um, so, so running was always a really big part of my life. So when I went to go run across the Tian Shan, I was, I was pretty competent, you know, I've been doing it for a long time and, um, yeah, I, I was pretty fit at the time. I didn't specifically train so much because it's impossible to train for, it's impossible to have a real life and train for something on that level where you're going to be running for 10 hours a day with a backpack. like. You know, you can't hold down a real life and do that.
1: Yeah, I think in in my run, I trained in London at the time where I was working and I I was training on tarmac roads and pavements and then once I got out to, to the sort of Mount Elgon in Kenya, you know, it was dirt roads which were bumpy and uneven and suddenly this sort of really easy run which I'd been training on going down very lovely paved roads suddenly became completely different from what i'd been training and you can't you can't really train for that other than try and build up your cardiovascular fitness
2: yeah definitely not if you live in london i think that's really difficult in cities to have access to to mimic something like that i mean don't you guys have one hill or something like that
1: yeah, which I think I, I walked up over the weekend for in about two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't quite class it as a, you know, a big hill.
2: Yeah, there's no altitude zone.
1: <laughs> no. So in terms of Kyrgyzstan, where did you fly into?
2: Uh Bishkek. Uh so I flew into Bishkek, the capital. Um and that's not a very high altitude. I think it's is it twelve hundred? We've been there. Um so I but I mean, still, coming from the UK to 1200, and if you're about to do something really ridiculously hard that's going to take you up to 4,500, you, you need to take it pretty slow. So I spent a couple days in Bishkek. Um, and the only thing I had to do, because I on this adventure, I didn't do this since, but on this adventure, I did take most of my kit with me. So the only thing I had to buy was the gas canisters that you can't fly with. Um, so Bishkek has a mountaineering office because they do have some 7,000ers. So that's basically, I mean, when I was in Kyrgyzstan, that was the majority of the adventure tourism industry was just the mountaineers that would come to plant flags on summits. So, so I went to the mountaineering office to buy my gas canisters and, um, and the guy there was like, what's your holiday plan? What are you doing in Kyrgyzstan? And so I, I told him, like, I'm just going to run across the country. It's going to be a thousand kilometers. It's going to be great. Got a backpack. And, um, and this guy, I mean, till my dying day, I'm going to remember this conversation. He just looked me up and down. He went, no, like, no, this can't be done. So I just said, well, no, you're wrong. I mean, unfortunately for him, the only thing I had to do that day was adjust to altitude. So like I had time. So I was like, no, I can't be done, buddy. Let me show you. And he had a map on the wall. And I kind of like drew on the map for him, my route that I had designed that I'd spent so much time designing because there was no route. Um, and he followed along and he went, you know what? Actually, that is a good route. I'm like, yes. Um, and he goes, you know what? I, actually you're right. Okay. I think it's possible for someone to run across Kyrgyzstan, but not you. And I'll just, I'll never forget the way that he did that. And it was just purely based on the way that I looked, you know, he didn't know anything about me. He didn't know my skills. He didn't know how many hours I put into mountains in my life to this point. He didn't know my grit. He just knew what I looked like, which is a woman. And yeah, I was so determined. I mean, he fueled so much of that run. Just that one conversation, this guy just doubting me just because of the way that I looked. So that was my that was my start in Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> I'm gonna be uh, I was, to him.
1: It's good motivation when times are tough. You're like, I'm gonna. Show yeah, him. he
2: can't win. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no matter what happens, I am going to make it. Yeah. Good. And so from Bishkek, you went probably over to Karakul? That's correct.
2: See, you know, <laughs> you know your country.
1: And did you start in, around Karakul?
2: Yeah, so I had a taxi drop me off a fair bit east of Karakul. Like, I didn't want to get too close to the borders just because I didn't have border permits. And I'd read a lot about corrupt guards and I was really like nervous about that kind of stuff at the time. Um, so yeah, I had a taxi driver just take me down the road like really far east of Caracol. And then I told him to let me off because I knew I could get up um, a river valley. He was just like, what? You want to get out of the taxi? Like, did I I say something wrong? Like you can't be here. Like there's nothing here. It's just the wilderness. I'm like, yeah, yeah, here and gave him the money and left. And he was just like, oh my God.
1: (laughs) Good. And was that by any chance the uh, world's worst road in Asia?
2: It felt that way at the time. I didn't know if it made a list. Does it? Is it on a list?
1: There's a road which goes up to Alakul, oh, and yeah, it's It's, a, it's about ten. I think it's about ten or twenty kilometers, and it's just horrendous.
2: I did run that because- road, and I assumed it was disused until I saw a hunka come around the corner, literally on like some forty-five degree tilt, and I was like. I mean, the drivers here are ballsy. Like, I wouldn't take my all-wheel drive on this under any circumstances.
1: We drove up in our car and we got stuck at the top because it was pouring over rain. And I mean, it, it was a horrendous uh, road.
2: Yeah, there's some. I um, so I went back to Kyrgyzstan a few years later to do a mountain biking race, and yeah, there I can certainly attest that the roads there are just something else. Like they just haven't been touched since the Soviets left. It seems like. I think now there's, there's a lot of infrastructure in the cities, but, um, but yeah, in the wilderness, there were a lot of things that I just thought were trails until a, a ladder comes around the corner and you just can't believe anyone's driving there.
1: And one thing is because you are sort of traveling over the mountain ranges, food and water, how did you manage to gather that? Because I imagine you are covering between 30 and 60 kilometers each day.
2: Uh, yeah, that's what I would try to average and so you're, you're quite committed. I mean, the stretches, I usually I can kind of figure out that to be on a fast packing setup, something that's light enough for me to carry. uh, For me personally, five days is kind of the maximum that I can pack food for and still be able to move and do up my backpack. Um, and that point you're really committed, like nothing can go wrong because if you're out there for an extra day, it's a hungry day. so I do dehydrated food and a stove. I find that's lighter. And also if you're going into mountains, I just think it's way safer to take a stove. You know, you have to be able to, to warm yourself up or, de- or clean water or something like that. So, um, yeah, so I would take dehydrated food, and, you know, it's not a, like now knowing what I know, cause I've been doing this for a few years. It's certainly not a healthy thing to do to your body to be in starvation mode for that long. Like you can't, or I can't get enough calories in a day. It's just, it can't be done. Like running 10 hours, um, and eating that much is just something that I've never been able to manage. So it's, it's definitely one of the hardest things to manage in the run, but you know, it's one of the most basic things. food.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, of course. And in terms of the people you met along the way, um, especially up in the mountain ranges are probably pretty nomadic people who live up there in yurts did they invite you in
2: yeah um i mean aside from the mountains themselves that was what called my heart um, it was the nomads i really wanted to meet them you know i've always believed that i have the heart of a nomad and i was so curious about this culture um and they they were unanimously lovely uh, I couldn't believe that, you know, I'd feel so alone. I'd be out in the wilderness just completely by myself. I wouldn't have used my voice in more than a day um, and not seen anyone. But if I stopped for any reason, like to fap with my bag or put on some sunscreen or whatever, these nomads would just come out of the woodwork. And I wouldn't realize that they all knew where I was. And they had their eyes on me the whole time. It seemed that suddenly, suddenly someone would show up on horseback and say, like, why did you stop? We saw you were running for hours. Are you okay? Do you need something? Come to the yard. We'll get you some tea. And And yeah, I was invited into so many homes. And it was... It was such a humbling experience to have so many people who have objectively so little, but are just so willing to share and make sure that I'm okay, that I'm warm enough, that I'm fed. and um, Yeah, really some of the loveliest people, I think, on this planet.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Kyrgyzstan was um, definitely one of my favorites when I went across Central Asia. And so you went from Karakul, and where did you finish up? In Osh, and, oh, in Osh, God, oh, that is a very, very long way. I asked yeah. That's what fa- <laughs> about was it? A thousand, course, o- yeah. And how long did that take you? How many days?
2: Twenty-five days, I think. That's uh, with, with a few days out with food poisoning. A, a, wow!
1: So I think there were
2: twenty-two days of running. What was,
1: the, like what was the what uh, was the produce that got you?
2: I don't know. I'll never know. I mean, it could have also been water. I mean, a lot of the water, like I always do filter my water, but some of the water is quite heavily contaminated out there. So um, gosh, I mean, it could have been anything. I mean, that was, and that was really towards the end. Like I was really close to Osh when it happened. And so I think at that point, like your body's strength to defend itself is just so low. You know, you just put yourself through so much. You're so exhausted in such a deep way that, you know, your defenses are just gone. So who you knows? it was nice.
1: And how did it feel finishing finishing in Osh?
2: I just never, I mean, there were so many points that I thought I would never make it. You know, I, and no one thought I couldn't do it. I mean, that guy that I met in Bishkek who said, not by you, he, he wasn't a singular case. Like a lot of people believe that. And even people at home, like I remember leaving and people saying things to me like, you know what, no matter what happens, it'll still be a story. And me going like, what does that mean um so you know there was a lot of belief that I couldn't do it both myself and externally so when I did do it I mean there was just so much you know looking back on that 16 year old girl who started running because she hated her body to suddenly being someone that is the only person alive who's ever run across the country like that's cool and it was really overwhelming I remember running through the gates and just like starting to cry but the thing was you know, with everyone believing that I couldn't do it and the Kyrgyz people being lovely about the fact that I couldn't do it, um, in those last few kilometers coming into Osh, car, cars kept on stopping to try and give me a lift because I said I was going to Osh, which was five kilometers away now. And they'd be like, oh, it's too far. You'll never be able to run there, get in the car. And I'm like, just come a thousand kilometers. Um, so I, I was kind of having this moment running into the city. And, you know, when you do. Things like this, there's no finish line. It's not like finishing a marathon where someone gives you chocolate milk and a free T-shirt and stuff. Like you just you're alone on the city street, just having this your, emotional your little moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um So that kind of happened, but then at the same time, there were just all these cars, and I wasn't used to cities, and I was sort of like in a city with pavement and all these people like trying to give me a lift and taxis honking, and you know, just like having a big moment here, guys. So it was kind of yeah, it was a funny moment, but it was it was big. Like I was really really proud of myself for. probably the the first time on that level.
1: And what was the sort of uh, highlight Do you feel of that trip? Was there a sort of moment that stuck out where you were like, wow, that was incredible?
2: I mean, there were so many and there there were probably some every day and then there was probably also lowlights every day. Um, Probably about halfway through, um, just before halfway through, I'd, I'd had a real incident where I'd made a huge navigational mistake And that had led to me being kind of caught in some landslides and a a really challenging um, climb that I I absolutely shouldn't have been doing by myself unroped. And it was really scary. And I knew that, I knew that I was way beyond the line of acceptable risk that one slip would cost me my life. Um, So it was like this prolonged death, near death experience. And so then when I finished that, and I did throughout that say, well, I've crossed the line, I've crossed the line that I accept, which means, I can't do this, and everyone is right. I can't do this. I'm going home. So I, I'd, I'd said the words out loud that I was quitting. As soon as I survived this, I was just gonna. I think I was three days away from the next highway, but like in those three days, I would get to the highway and I would just go home. Like I would just can it. So I had quit, but obviously had to keep keep moving because I'm in the middle of the wilderness with only a couple of days worth of food. Um, and then after that happened, I got invited into a yurt by some nomads, and like I was really upset I was in a really fragile place because I nearly died and um and this family took me in and I was kind of part of their family for a night even if you don't speak the same language it's amazing how much you can connect with people and um they just totally revived like they didn't know that I'd had a horrible day they didn't know that I'd been like crying all afternoon they just saw that I was outside and took me in um, and it just totally revived me. And the next day was this really beautiful day. And I remember having a really nice sunset and a really nice camp spot, and just like everything fell into place. And like after your worst day, you always have your best day, don't you? And so I just remember being really grounded that day and just realizing like this whole concept of being in this world first is just crap. Like it's just not important. Like it absolutely doesn't matter. A thousand people could run across Kyrgyzstan we'll come back with a thousand different stories. And that's what's valuable is is this experience that I'm having. So after that, I think everything, all my motivation behind this whole project just completely changed. That it was just about, you know, enjoying this experience and connecting with this place and these people. And so that was, that was definitely my biggest um, mindset change. And that's carried through. That's now how I approach the mountains. I think we have a real culture of first and fastest in adventure. You have to be the first person to do something the fastest or it's not valuable. And I just, I hate that. Like, I just think it's bullshit. I think, you know, adventure is worthwhile. Yeah, I. I I
1: agree. We, I ha, we were discussing the other day about how all these records around the world, which people are sort of doing, they're becoming harder and harder. And actually a lot of the time you're doing these sort of adventures for your own.
2: So this has to be valuable to you. And this has to be something that's honest to you. Cause like, you're right. No one cares. This is such a privileged thing that we get to do. Like it's beyond privilege. Um, to go struggle on purpose, to intentionally go have a really bad holiday. You know, that's essentially what it is. Um, So yeah, you just got to remind yourself like all of that stuff, it's not important. And when you get to those really hard moments out there, that's not the stuff that's going to get you through thinking like, what about the headline or whatever? Like you've got to have way better reasons.
1: Was there a point where you sort of did sort of 60 or 50 kilometers in a day or a hundred kilometers in a day. And you're like, right, get in. This is amazing. I've just clocked over a hundred and then for a brief period. And then you're like, yeah, I mean, that's just me.
2: Yeah. I think I remember having that in the Atlas mountains, cause the mileage could be a lot higher out there because it was just, just easier terrain, just faster. And I remember having these big mileage days and thinking like I'm shit hot right now, like this is going well. And then you just kind of look around yourself and you're like. I mean, I'm ba- like, again, I'm talking to a camera. Like, <laughs> like I'm alone. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. And if I said that to, like, the next passerby, I see some berber coming down the trail. They'll be like, what? Like, <laughs> what did he just say? And why does anyone care?
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies
1: And how did your, um, race or your trip in the Atlas mountains compare with Kyrgyzstan?
2: Um, so I arrived there feeling really confident because I now knew what it took to run across a mountain range. Um, the Atlas are, they're a lot shorter, like altitude wise. Uh, you know, there were a lot of things that were just going to be easier. You know, the places I was going weren't frequented by visitors, but at least Morocco does have a huge tourism industry. So at least in the cities that I would use for logistics, there was like people who looked like me and and there was a bit more of a culture towards that. So I I went into it thinking this is going to be way easier. And I think the mountains always punish confidence. Uh, So they they were completely different, but they were they were really hard in different ways um part of that was myself I had a really big fall in the beginning and cut my hip open really quite badly um definitely did need stitches but I didn't get them I just duct taped it closed and kept going so I had a had an injury and that was getting infected and it was really swollen so I was I was limping as it was um but the biggest problem in Morocco was of course the cultural difference um that being a solo woman doing mountain sports just it just doesn't exist and there were quite a lot of men trying to stop me and never in a, in a threatening and violent way, just in a, in a paternal way. Like they just really didn't accept or they'd never seen women doing solo sports. So for them, they could only see danger. They could only see that I was going to die and they did not want me to die. So it was, it was quite complicated to be, you know, really angry at these people that are trying to stop me from doing my expedition and doing something that I know and something that I'm confident about. Um, but knowing that they're not doing it from from a bad place. They're doing it from a place of they want me to be okay. And they just do not believe that I could go into the mountains and be okay. So there was there was a huge culture clash that kind of overrode the whole, you know, like I've always said with these things, running is by far the easy part. It's the part that everyone thinks is so incredible. Wow, you ran so far. But like I've always run. Running's awesome. I'm good at it. Right, left, right, left. Stop when you're tired. Like it's easy. So running was just the holiday between like, all these logistics, all these, um, cultural, um, issues to figure out, like all the other stuff, that's what's hard.
1: And the sort of day-to-day running, because it's sort of the day-to-day running is quite mundane. What sort of kept you occupied throughout the day? Because although the scenery is insane in some of these countries, as you say, when you're running morning till evening. Your your sort of mind wonders What sort of kept you entertained in your own mind? Did you listen to music, podcasts?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, sometimes there are so many hours that I can't account for on <laughs> these. I have no idea where I was. <laughs> like, you know, you get to the end of the day and you want to write in your diary what happened today, and you go, "Gosh, I have no idea." Like, I literally don't know. And that's partly why I bring a camera is to because, like, I won't remember because I just have gone to like the zone. And now I've just, like, my brain's wherever it is. Um, So there's a lot of that. Um, I do listen to music and podcasts. I think music's really fascinating to manipulate your mood. You know, if you need mojo, there's a playlist for that. If you need to calm down because you're scared, there's a playlist for that. Like When you're alone, you have to find a way to manage your mindsets because you don't have a partner who's going to say this isn't this isn't working. You need to come back to this. Um, So you have to be able to do that. And you won't always have the capability to do that. You know, when you're feeling really negative, it's so hard to like solo pull yourself out of that negative black hole that you're going down. So you have to have the discipline and say, I need help. Well, the only help available is my headphones. So, um, so music's really fascinating in that way to me to manipulate my mood. Um, Podcasts, I probably got into, um, I was maybe, three quarters of the way through Kyrgyzstan when I realized like I haven't had a conversation in English the only language I'm confident in in a really long time and I think I forget how to do it and I think I'm losing my mind and I found that listening to podcasts just two people having a conversation was enough to bring me back to reality and like remember what my life is normally like and the conversations I normally have and um, so so podcasts are are great for that just like injecting something because as you say the running is mundane all you think about all day long is your navigation and finding enough water that's kind of like and food <laughs> yeah and that's all you have to do that's literally all you have to do is you have to keep moving in the same direction like your to-do list is is very small so
1: and so you've done the atlas you've done um the uh what's the the one in kyrgyzstan the Shan. that's the one yeah and so how many more have you got to go? One. Just one?
2: Um, yeah, I finished number five uh, just over a month ago. Yep. So, yeah, just, just Europe left, actually.
1: Just Europe. And which uh, European range are you? Uh,
2: so, it was, it was meant to be the Caucasus, and I was meant to do them this spring, which obviously spring 2020 didn't happen. did it? So, um, it was always meant to be the Caucasus. I'm kind of now at a place where it's more important to me to finish this challenge. I mean, this challenge has been in my life for four years. Oh my god. I'm getting old. Four years. So it like it's just it's time for me to to finish it. So yeah, it was always gonna be the Caucasus, whether or not I'm gonna be able to go to Georgia and Azerbaijan by next summer. I don't know. Uh, but there are other options within Europe. So at this point I'm I'm not gonna make that call until probably May. I'll call it literally last minute because a lot of things stay the same. Like what I need to pack. Like I've already prepared the Caucasus expedition, so if it goes ahead, you know, I've already got my route and stuff like that. So Oh wait. What, what, it,
1: what is your route?
2: Uh starting in I'm gonna pronounce everything incorrectly.
1: Okay. Starting uh,
2: in Abkhazia. Azerbaijan? Yeah. Yeah, and there's an autonomous region that's on the coast on the west.
1: I think okay. it's called
2: Abkhazia, or something like that. That's how it looks in English. Um okay. and on, The route that I've made, I'm not going to cross into Russia just because the logistics of going back and forth over borders and all the autonomous regions. I mean, that's your biggest problem with the Caucasus is all the autonomous regions are like these little red dots on the map going, if you go here, your insurance is void and your country won't come get you if you get in jail for getting your passport wrong. uh,
1: I I remember in Georgia, there was an area in the mountains where, again, we couldn't go and we sort of walked up and... The army were like, no, no, this is as far as you're allowed to go.
2: Yeah, so and that's gonna contribute a lot of extra miles, like a lot, because I'm not gonna be able to go straight across. I'm gonna have to like go around these barriers. And so um it's it's really interesting, but it's also um really challenging. So I've kind of got a meandering route across Georgia, and that Georgia's I think the first half, like it's almost kind of exactly Georgia and then Azerbaijan. Um and yeah, then out to Basically, out to the coast, so I'll go, it'll be a nice coast to coast.
1: And so, what's your hope is to do that once COVID sort of settles down and you're allowed to go.
2: Uh, I'd, I'd rather finish the challenge. So, if, if COVID doesn't allow, then I could do the generic Alps. I absolutely love the Balkans, or I could do Pyrenees, or you know, I've got plan ABC kind of kind of ready. So as long as any form of going outside is allowed next June, July, I will be out running a mountain range on the European continent. Just which one is the, I'll be announcing that probably like June, July.
1: <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. And, um, and people can, fo- and how do people follow your sort of adventures?
2: Uh, I do share them on social media as I go along. Um, kind of, Post data just for safety reasons. I don't think it's good to like live stream where you are all by yourself with all your fancy stuff. Uh, but yeah, I do do share everything along on social media. Any tough
1: on Instagram and YouTube. Yes. What other sort of uh, adventures have you done other than because you did you do this mountain biking races? Yeah, you do these my- mountain biking races around the world too.
2: Yeah, my bike touring just kind of got out of hand, and started bike packing, and then that led to to signing up for ultra distance racing, uh, which isn't my mindset. Like, I'm not a race person. I'm not competitive. I'm like, I'm one of those people that people get medals for participation. Like, it's people like me who are just like, everyone did a great job today. Like, that's how I race. <laughs> like, I just don't belong in a race environment. But, um, but I started doing them and what I found was it was amazing that there were people just like me which is something I'd probably never found people who are weird the way that I am people who want to travel the way that I travel um who experience the outdoors the way that I do it with that combination of like being thrilled by the adventure of seeing this place but also wanting to like push their bodies to its limits and find out what their limits are um so I started racing through that um and did see some success and thousand failures and yeah, it's, it's been amazing. That's certainly something that I'm really missing right now is, is that race community.
1: Yeah, I, I have to agree. It's very difficult to try and convince people of your plans or try and encourage them to come along because you're sort of saying, Oh, where are you going on holiday? And then they might say somewhere nice, like, you know, France or the Bahamas, or, you know, some nice beach holiday and, and relax or go on a uh, thousand mile run across The, uh, Atlas mountains. Yeah. Not uh, everyone thinks that's a holiday. (laughs) I join the weird club. Hey, (laughs) (laughs) um, so there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to every guest. Okay. So we always ask them on your trips. What's the one thing you crave or miss from home?
2: Uh. You know, it usually takes a while for me to crave or miss. I mean, coffee machine, it comes up a lot as something that I miss. Um, and then when things start to get really bad, like really bad, then I start to miss the couch and how comfortable it is.
1: <laughs> Did you, what is your favorite
2: adventure book? The Living Mountain by Nan Jeopard. Um, I think she's such a great writer, but there's actually, there's a lot in the adventure literature industry that is just kind of one narrative of the ex-military British white male. And there's a lot of terminology about conquering mountains and stuff like that. Um, and Nan Shepherd's approach is, I think, very much the female-led approach of the mountain will be here, was here before you and will be here after you, and you're a blip and just experiencing the beauty of the landscape and not worrying about planting flags at the top. And and I just really love the way that she writes. And it's a book that, it's an older book and it's about, it's all in the Cairngorms, which is a part of the world that is really close to my heart. So that's hundred percent my favorite.
1: Okay. So did you um, have an inspirational figure growing up?
2: I didn't. And I think that has driven a lot of what I've done now because I was always adventuring. I just wasn't telling anyone about it. And the switch from me, Who is a total introvert to suddenly start, you know, filming myself and putting things on social media. That was, um, it doesn't come naturally to me, but I found it was really important because I never had anyone who looked like me when I was growing up. And I I say growing up, I mean, up until like really recently, I never had anyone in the outdoor industry that I could look to and think that person's like me and I'm inspired by them. So um, that's why I think it's important to bring different, voices into the industry and to, um, bring different narratives, different body types, different human types. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't have one.
1: I think there was a quote from someone who said he was on a very similar, um, line of thought, And he said when he grew up, he didn't really have an inspirational figure, so he just looks to inspire himself and looks to, you know, make sure that he's the figure that he wants to be.
2: That's beautiful. I like that.
1: I think it was Matthew McConaughey always said his inspirational figure was him five years from now. (laughs) And so he'd always look five years ahead and say, oh, you know, who is this um, figure I'm going to be? And then he would try and emulate that figure. And then five years Mm -hmm. from now, it'd always be him from five years.
2: I'm going to trial that, actually. That that sounds really... Intriguing. I like it.
1: Do you have a favorite quote or motivational quote that sort of keeps you going or inspires you?
2: Um, so I have a lot of mantras. I'm really big, at, big on mantras. Um, one of mine is like, one of mine is "Don't be shit." Um, one of mine is "Toughen up." <laughs> um, but the one of the quotes that I really love that I keep coming back to and something that I always kind of need at the start is always do what you are afraid to do. Uh, it's a Waldo Emerson quote, I think. Um, and I think that always gives me that courage Because at the start line. You always just look at it and go like, suddenly the mountains get way bigger, don't they? And you just go, Oh, what have I done? I shouldn't be here. I can't do this. Um, and then I remind myself like that fear is a good, good sign. You need that. Yeah. Uh, that's quite nice.
1: Um, and I and I imagine a lot of people listening are always keen to go on these sort of grand adventures. Um, what would you recommend for them to get them started?
2: Um, I would say make. I'm a really big fan of make a list. Um, there are reasons why you're not out there right now, so make a list of what they are. You know, it could be money, time, skills. Um, Whatever it is, make a list of all the reasons that things that stand in your way between you and your adventure and then just start taking the things off the list. If you don't have the skills, we'll we'll get the skills like, you know. Um, So I think if you just break it down on that level and just show yourself, these are the barriers and this is how and then make a plan for how you're going to access all of them. Uh, And the second thing I would say is you're tougher than you think. You can totally do this. If fear is one of the problems, um, let me just tell you that you don't need that. You're fine
1: got this amazing and um i know we we said this earlier but just for anyone who was, wasn't listening how can people find you and follow your adventures for the future
2: uh, on social media it's jenny tough real name and uh same with the website it's jenny Tuff.
1: how many times have people sort of said is that your real name
2: all the time and i get really self-conscious that people think it's my instagram name but i'm not cool enough to have an instagram name and if i did i'm not sure that's the one i would give myself um but yeah no it's i got lucky with that one real name
1: (laughs) and finally i suppose what people are wondering what is next
2: what is next is i will finish this challenge to run across a mountain range in every continent so there's just one chapter left and that's my that's my biggest focus right now
1: amazing And I'm just on a sort of more uh, personal. Did you ever try horse's milk in Kyrgyzstan?
2: Kumis, yes. Um, I didn't get a choice on it. The nomads were very clear that it was very important to my health that I drink a lot of Kumis. I think one of the yurts didn't let me leave without a liter of it. Like he literally like dumped out my water bottle and chilled it up with Kumis. (laughs) He was like, it's really good for you. Um, Yeah. Did you have it?
1: Uh, I I tried the horse milk's cheese. And that was, oh, wow. that was, um, more than that's I a more best. advanced
2: level. The, the comus is not as, I mean, it's, it's still an acquired taste, but I think you went too advanced by starting with the cheese. You should have started with the milk.
1: <laughs> yeah. After the, trying the cheese, which was, you know, back of the throat, like
2: this is
1: <laughs> just awful. Um, I was like, no, I, 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 I can, I can give horses milk a miss as much as they claim to be high in vitamin C. I I was like, it's not happening.
2: Yeah. I understand your trepidation with that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for coming on today. And I I look forward to following your adventure in the the European mountain range, whichever one they may be and when that happens. And, um, again, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Awesome. Thanks
1: again. Join us next time on the Modern Adventurer podcast. We're throwing photos of his family off the mountain um, saying he was going to die and it required... And he, didn't re- he didn't want the oxygen we gave him. Um, he refused it because he wanted to you know, die in peace. Thank you for listening. You can watch the videos on YouTube now and please tell your friends about the podcast, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes as it makes a huge difference to the show. Thank you, and have a great day.